Welcome back to Top 3 Things. My name is Sam Klinger, and today we're listening to James Olderoid talk with Case Lawrence, who is the founder of Circus Tricks. Case takes us through the process of globalizing his company, and then discusses the top things he'd recommend to anyone who is interested in having an international career. Hello, my name is James Oldroyd. This is The Top Three Things. Welcome today. Today, my guest is Case Lawrence, who is the founder and chairman of Circus Tricks. Case, it's great to have you on the show today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So trampoline parks, where did this idea come from? Well, it really was not my idea originally. I was in San Francisco with my two boys who were nine and seven at the time. And a friend of mine had told me that we ought to check out this place at the Presidio. They were remodeling the military base there in San Francisco. And an entrepreneur had taken one of the old hangars at the military base and turned it into one of the first trampoline parks in the country. There were probably 10 in the country at that time. And so I was up there to go to a baseball game with my two boys. And we got there the night before and I said, well, we'll go check this place out we have a little time. We walked in and it was just this incredible experience. I'd never conceived anything like it. It was this sensory overload, physicality overload experience where we had trampolines, you had music playing, you had a social interaction. People were there in social groups or with families like I was. There was a design element to it and there was a competitive element to it as well. By the end of the night, we're playing dodgeball with complete strangers there in this place. And it was such a weird mashup of all these different things that I left there and I thought, I'm going to do one of these. I can figure this out. And so I set about, you know, trying to get my first one started. And I did in Madera, California. That that was where I did my first one. And my objective with it at the time was just to create a viable small business. I was at a sort of a crossroads time in my career. It was during the Great Recession. And I had been a real estate developer and really struggled through the recession. And so I was looking for sort of a bridge of income while I got my career back online. And I thought this quirky small business would be the key to providing some income for my family. So that's, that's how it got started with very modest goals and objectives. I assume it was successful and you said, let's go from here. Tell us about the scaling process or the growth process. Yeah, it was it was really funny. I remember sitting down with my wife saying, "Look, if we can clear 5,000 bucks a month with this small business, that would be success beyond our wildest dreams. It would fulfill everything we ever wanted." And it ended up doing that and more. But even then I wasn't really looking outward until a gentleman walked into the door front doors of the business one day and asked to speak with me and he was looking to move to the East Coast and looking to start a new business. And he had been watching, he actually lived right behind this first trampoline park that I had done and had seen the traffic and the success. And I thought he was there to complain about the music, but he actually wanted to talk to me about starting one of these businesses on the East Coast. Without going into too much detail, I'll just say that gentleman, Mike Carpenter, who to this day is a great business partner and friend was the impetus to sort of drag me into my second one. Uh, It wasn't really my passion or drive doing it. It was kind of just being drugged along by him. 
So then we did two. We did that second one in Durham, North Carolina. And then from there, a woman from Richmond, Virginia walked in and said, I would really like to do one of these in Richmond. Would you help me do it? And I thought, well, okay. Uh, so that's how I got into my third park. All of these were just sort of responding to others' excitement. And after that third one, I knew that I had a tiger by the tail because they were all performing uh, in a very strong manner. And that's when I began to think about really scaling this and turning it into a business. To that point, I considered each one of these sort of an independent, small local business with different partners. After that third one, I realized we could really turn this into a scalable enterprise. And that's how Circus Tricks was born. Once you decided, you know, this could be a scalable business, you know, after that third park, Tell us about how quickly did you ramp these? What happened as you really took off there? Yeah, the key really comes down to capital. When I had done those first three, I had cobbled together the money. I really didn't have any money because of the recession. I cobbled everything together through angel friends and family investors. That was a lot of work. When I say cobbled together, you know, 50,000 here, 75,000 here. And what I found was it, by far the most difficult part of what I was doing was raising money. Mm -hmm. And I also learned that it doesn't matter if someone puts in $10,000 or if they put in $3 million, they require the same TLC. No matter who or what size the investor, they require the same kinds of attention and uh, relationship management. You know, I'd have six, seven investors on each one of these projects and it was wearing me out. And so the real inflection point came when I was able to find a venture capital partner to fund our growth. And that was Puri Partners in Palo Alto. I was put in contact with them. They were a non-traditional private growth capital family office. We came to a, an understanding and we hit it off very well, but they put a program in place that allowed me to grow with just them as an investor. And that really made all the difference. And from that point on, once that program was in place, we were doing 12, 13, 14 of these a year uh, yeah. and really putting the pedal to the metal. Well, and you could just focus on what you're good at, right? And let the, the money stuff not, or I shouldn't, I don't know, maybe exactly. you're good at the money stuff as well, no, but that's you, it. you could focus you, singly on that. And you hit it on the head. We could really just focus on the product and on finding buildings and leases in markets to grow. I'm really curious. You got dragged to the East Coast from West Coast. How did you go international? Was that also someone yeah. coming in or what's the impetus there? It started with a realization that this concept was going to jump the pond, as we say, that trampoline parks, the first couple outside of the U.S. had begun to open. And there was a sense that the appeal of these parks was universal, that the demand for them was, was strong, even in these other countries and other cultures. And so there, there began to be a sense of a race to, you know, a land grab to grab markets internationally. About that same time, a friend of mine here in Utah Valley returned home. He had been working for a, a local company in Hong Kong and was familiar with that market. Over lunch with him, we discussed the possibility of what it would take to find a building in Hong Kong. And he had some contacts there. And so we reached out and I'll never forget talking to the real estate broker on the telephone call. This is the gentleman that I was put in contact with by my friend and explaining to him what we wanted. And he said, you'll never find that in Hong Kong. 
it could it could be 10, 15 years. And even if you did, it would cost over a hundred thousand US dollars a month wow. to rent that kind of space that you need to do it. And so it seemed like a, a real flyer. We ended the call just by saying, Well, here's my contact info. If you do find anything, give me a call. Well, lo and behold, about a week later, he called and he was almost apologetic. He couldn't believe it. He said, I cannot believe this, but we have a unique opportunity on Hong Kong Island. And it was a, an old wine warehouse that was on the fifth story of a skyscraper right in the middle of the island. It had no windows. And so it could not be used for office space. And because of that, they were having a hard time leasing it. And the rent was a lot more reasonable than what is typical in Hong Kong. So it was almost like it was wow. gift raft and just appeared on our lap. And so we jumped at that opportunity. It was very unique. And we opened our first international park in Hong Kong. And that was back in 2014. From there, it just took off again. Like what kind of processes did you put in place to get, get it going internationally? And We call that one of our great learning experiences. It was both a blessing and a curse. The blessing was that it was phenomenally successful. We had our best opening in the Hong Kong park that we'd ever had at any U.S. park. We did almost half a million dollars the first month. Beyond that, it was just easy. Everything had gone very smoothly. Interacting with vendors there was simple. Interacting with the local government there was almost unbelievably simple. And so the whole thing was just too easy. The curse to that was, as we look back now, we realize we developed sort of a paradigm for what it would take to grow internationally from our experience in Hong Kong. And we projected that on our plans going forward. And what we found was it was much harder mm. elsewhere. And so that was our first big lesson internationally was this easy success we had in Hong Kong. It was a setup for some adversity in the future. So every year the World Bank ranks countries on the ease of doing business and Hong Kong's always, you know, one or two. And so I think that's exactly what, you know, you found as well. This is extremely Absolutely. easy place to do business. So I have lots of businesses that are thinking about going international. What advice, you know, would you have for them? What are some of the things that you learned specific with circus tricks? And then what are some things that you could extract at a higher level in helping them yeah. doing business internationally? Well, there's a couple of things. I think, I think the first thing that I learned that we, that we at Circus Tricks learned from our international experience was sort of found its way into a, a rule of business that we use now at Circus Tricks and what I will use in whatever other business experiences I have in the future. And that is we will never do business in another country without local partners. To just reference back to that Hong Kong experience, we did that directly. We leased the building, we owned the business, we owned the park and did it all directly. It was fine when there was no adversity and no friction, as I mentioned, was the case in Hong Kong. But when we got into the UK and into Europe in general, and we ran into government bureaucracy and some challenges there, we found that we, without a local partner who understood the culture, understood the political machinations of local governments, there was just simply no way to really function and really fight off any adversity from a business sense without a local partner. And so we learned the hard way there. Based on those experiences, we will never go in to another country without a local native partner again. 
So that's number one. Number two, I think the other thing we found was that brands and to a lesser extent products really never translate one-to-one across countries and across cultures. They can get close, but you know, the example I use with everyone is that even Diet Coke here in the US is not able to translate directly. It's Coke light in, in Europe and it tastes a little different and it's branded a little different. We learned that in the trampoline business as well. For, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Space is very valuable in our parks because we have a limited amount of space and we have to utilize every square foot of that space to put attractions that will engage people. And one of our most popular attractions in the US is trampoline dodgeball. It's maybe the most popular attraction in our US parks and has been from the beginning of the trampoline park industry. Interestingly, when we put those in in Europe and in Hong Kong, they went virtually unused. What we found was it was just a real unique cultural idiosyncrasy that Americans are willing to engage in direct combat, namely throwing Nerf dodgeballs at strangers' heads in close proximity. Other cultures just wouldn't go for that. And we ended up finding ourselves with a lot of dead space in these international parks where we put these dodgeball courts. We just couldn't afford to do that. So in all of those instances, we ended up swapping out that space within a year and learn that just because a product works in the US, to assume that 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 will work in any other culture is usually wrong. Usually some iteration of it will work, but it needs to be nuanced and massaged to fit that country and that culture. So that was that's lesson number two. Lesson number three, I would say, is another thing we've learned the hard way is that the media and journalism in other countries is much, much different than the U.S. and in particular, its relationship with business. You know, when your business is based a lot on PR and earned marketing, as we call it now in the U.S., and trying to get the word out through media and journalism about your product, there's a strategy for doing that in the U.S. that's pretty tried and true, it's pretty predictable, and can be very successful. In other countries, what we found is that the media, and in particular, the way media views and interacts with business is a lot different than in the U.S. And if you try to utilize the media to market your business internationally outside of the U.S., you will more likely than not run into serious problems. (laughs) So that's the other rule of thumb. Those are sort of three very practical lessons that I've learned. That's great. So a lot of students are thinking, you know, what about an international career? You know, what about working for either for a multinational, actually going abroad and being an expat or going working for a foreign company? Do you have any advice that you give them? Yeah, I think those careers are ever more viable as the world is getting flatter and borders getting lower. The ability to have an expat career in particular is very possible and the options and diversity of of opportunity have never been greater. For example, our operator in Hong Kong served a mission there, speaks the language, and, and decided early on that he wanted to live and have a career in Hong Kong and started out as a real estate broker there, you know, has established his family there. He has proved to be very valuable to us for many of the reasons I mentioned earlier about having a local partner who knows the culture and the, the language. But I think the key is if, if someone's interested in doing that, 
there's a little bit of a faith jump in just needing to get over there. I think it's very hard to source many of those opportunities from the U.S. Often, I found that the most successful way to do that is to have the faith to relocate yourself into the market that you want to work and begin doing the work there to get a life started and establish yourself and look for a job there. I think the romantic notion of being able to sit here comfortably in the U.S. and throw resumes around and interview for jobs in Singapore or in Hong Kong or in Paris, it's possible, but it's a lot harder. I think if you're really serious about it, the key is to find a way to get yourself over there and start a life in those cities and find a job there. I think that that's more successful, more likely, more times than not. You've just recently won CEO of the year. You're cited all the time as being, you know, just a phenomenal leader. If you were to, again, looking at a 20-year-old student as they're thinking of starting their career, what leadership advice would you have for them? I don't know that I have a particular style or strategy that I try to implement. My, you know, I, I think the same values and characteristics that make someone a good person translate into good business leadership. And I think sincerity and genuine caring for your employees and for their families and feeling the weight of that responsibility, the weight of people's livelihoods in your hands and what that means to them and their families. I think people who take that lightly will never be good CEOs and good good leaders. People know when their leaders really do care and have genuine concern for them. You can't fake that business quotes and you know one-liners are never going to replace just people knowing that you've got their back and that you care about them and their families and their careers. So I don't have any flashy style or clever style. I just try to be the best person I can be and care for my stewardship the best I can in terms of the employees. Whenever I am guided by that, that leads to the best culture and the best environment in the company. I love that. You know, if you're a good person, you're going to be a good leader. That's, that's actually profound. Sometimes we try to overcomplicate those things and it, it, I've never found it to be much more than that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for uh, talking with me today. You know, what a fun company, a fun organization. You know, I'm a business strategy professor and often we're looking at overcrowded markets. And I think in this case, you had like a wide open or yeah. blue ocean as it's called. Right fun to be on the uh, forefront of that and really create a global brand. Yeah. Thanks so much, Case. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. We hope you can join us again next time and be sure to check out our other podcast videos and articles on internationalhub.org.